0: You're listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org.
1: This session is uh, called Sustainable Lending and Transparency, and I'm very pleased to have been asked to, uh, to chair this session. I'm head of the international economic development group here uh, at ODI and uh, so earlier on today we had a discussion around debt dynamics and uh, thinking a bit about sort of the African side of uh, the debt equation and this session will be on the other side will be on the lender's side uh, of, uh, of the debt equation And, uh, of course, it's not very easy to separate the two. Uh, It always takes two to tango. And actually, uh, if you think about it, in some languages, um, there isn't actually a distinction between uh, borrowing and lending. So my native language, we all use one particular term for both of them. And so uh, they must be intrinsically linked. However, having said that, I think we should uh, think about those institutions that think about um, the lending side and are concerned about the lending side, perhaps because of their own uh, business models, uh, but also, of course, because they're concerned about how their funds are, uh, are being used. Um, I should perhaps also say that, uh, that we've had a very good explanation already that debt uh, is a very complex issue now in, um, in African countries. and. Uh, it's both on the borrowing side, but also on the lending side. So there will be uh, there's a public side to this. There's a private side to this, um, both on the borrowing and the lending side. So there's public and private lending to the public and the private sector, um, which makes it a very interesting and complex um, and I suppose we should also be talking a little bit about um, um, uh, the more structural lending issues, and perhaps uh, cyclical issues as well. So some debt crises are, are more cyclical, um, and others are uh, perhaps more uh, more structural. Um, so uh, we're interested to think about what lenders can do to avoid an unsustainable uh, uh, sort of debt build up, and uh, that for us is a very important topic. Um, there are guidelines. Uh, voluntary guidelines, but OECD, by others, and so on, that have th- are thinking about this. So we want to hear a bit about those, how <coughs> effective they are. Uh, we want to think a bit about how uh, debt issues can be monitored, what metrics are the lenders uh, using, um, and we want to be using uh, or we're thinking about what instruments lenders can be using uh, to avoid uh, debt pile-up in particular situations. And in order to discuss that, we have got a really fantastic panel. and I'm really pleased that we've got such a diversified panel. I would like to thank also, uh, particularly, Annalisa Prison and uh, the organizers who put this uh, panel together. Um, but what we have is, um, is a wide range of, uh, of actors. Um, and um, just briefly to introduce them, uh, so we have Giulia Pellegrini, uh, who is Portfolio Manager and Director of Research for Frontier Markets at BlackRock. Um, we then have uh, Ruud Brouwer, who is the CEO at the TCX Fund, and I think that is uh, it's spun out of FMO, the Dutch Development Organization, if I'm correct, um, and thinking about local currency uh, uh, solutions. Uh, we then have uh, Jamie Drummond, who's the co-founder and executive director uh, for uh, global strategy for the One Campaign, and of course he knows a lot about uh, debt issues. He will no doubt um, uh, explain uh, and has been deeply involved uh, from the well, from the early uh, start uh, in the early 2000s and before uh, on on debt issues. Uh, we then have Janus. Uh, um, Manuel Delis, uh, if I pronounce it correctly, who fortunately has stepped in uh, at last minute to, uh, and he's part of an ad hoc committee on GDP-linked um, uh, uh, bonds and we'll be talking about uh, those issues. And finally, we have um, uh, Judith Tyson, who is uh, the lead researcher on international capital flows uh, at Overseas uh, Development Institute discussing these particular issues. So we're really pleased to have this wide range of, um, of presenters. And we've given them uh, seven minutes to introduce the topic, and so we hope we uh, we can stick to those those seven minutes. Um, so first up is Julia uh, Pellegrini, so we're very pleased to have you here, and particularly to give us sort of a private sector, uh, private sector view on lending, uh, and particularly about... Um, So the the, the lending guidelines that exist, do you think they are effective, does the private sector use it? And you've also been working a lot around uh, ESG issues, uh, environmental, social, and uh, governance safeguards issues, do you think that sustainable lending uh, principles could be part of that? Um, So over to you for a sort of seven-minute introduction.
2: Thank you very much. So uh, there seem to be uh, at least a couple of questions in there. On on the issue of guidelines on sustainable financing, uh, I think uh, they're definitely a step forward. They're a step in the right direction in that they prompt both lenders and borrowers to focus more critically on the issue of that sustainability. Uh, of course, critics out there will come up with things such as um, they're simply guidelines, their principles, can they be enforced? They seem to look mainly at official bilateral creditors. So there's a number of things that could arguably be improved. I would say I'd rather approach the question from, again, that, uh, the issue of how comprehensive they are, if they really map out the world out there as it is. Uh, what we have seen in... Um, in the past decade has been an incredible change in terms of the way countries finance themselves, especially if you look at the poorer part of the emerging markets, at the least developed part of the EM, so the so-called frontier markets, as we use in jargon in the financial sector industry. Um, So what you've seen is that in the last 10 years, you've gone uh, from uh, having about 38 constituents to J.P. Morgan's main uh, EM debt index, the EMBI. Uh, where you capture US dollar denominated debt from emerging markets to having at the end of this year 72. So you've nearly doubled the number of constituents into that important industry benchmark. Most of the new entries really come from, again, the so-called frontier markets. So the landscape out there has changed. It means that a broader set of countries among uh, Them, there are some of the poorer ones in the world, uh, are increasingly looking the international capital markets for a reliable source of financing. So that has changed. What has also changed is that, especially in the years 2014, 2015, when you had a significant drop in commodity prices, you've seen a number of new ways of financing coming up. They're not so new. Some have been in existence for, for decades, but they sort of uh, saw a resurgence. You've seen commodity-backed loans. You've seen private placements. You've seen bi- a lot more bilateral, uh, sort of commercial, rather, uh, loans being taken up. So the, the the type of instruments has changed as well, and it's increasingly difficult to capture them properly in that data uh, for some of the poorer countries again they may not have the capacity to do so and then what you have seen is something that perhaps other speakers will address more later but it's worth mentioning uh, the development of local debt markets (laughs) Uh, so local debt markets have seen a a big surge especially uh, in the Pacific world that's in and of itself A very positive thing, I would say, because uh, it obviously allows a country to have a a very uh, different source of financing in domestic currency from a domestic, uh, perhaps, institutional investor base that is growing. And that's all positive. I I was uh, very lucky to be given the opportunity as an ODI fellow to be uh, working in the debt management office in Abuja, Nigeria, over a decade ago by now. Um, And one thing that my boss back then, as we were coming out of Paris Club Debt Relief, used to me was that uh, what we're looking to do here, we're looking to grow our domestic debt market. We want to really develop that because the idea is that we no longer want to be owing money to our brothers or our cousins overseas, we want to be owing money to our wives. If you owe money to your wife, if you really get stretched and you can't make it, she's not going to go to the market square and embarrass you and say, my husband's not paying me back. So what she'll do is she'll try and work something out with you, she'll be a bit more patient, you'll talk it out. Now, the problem is that over time, these countries have no longer been owing money to their wives. They're increasingly owing money again to their brothers and sisters overseas, including myself as an investor in BlackRock. So that part has also changed. It comes with the pros of local currency denominated debt, a local uh, pension fund industry that is investing your government bonds but it also comes with increasingly foreign ownership that can get in and out of a country and generate some fluctuations that I'm sure we'll talk about so the, the picture has changed dramatically what um, what I would say is that the guidelines have a lot of scope to improve capturing this broader picture Uh, What I do like a lot is the fact that they place a lot of emphasis on knowledge accumulation and capacity development in these countries. They encourage a discussion around that sustainability, they encourage uh, countries to really build the local capacity to be better placed to have those discussions with lenders in whatever shape or form they come, through the local debt market, through commodity-based lending and so on, at least you have the ability to have that discussion before you put that signature onto it. Um, on uh, ESG issues, I'll be brief. I would say that um, you definitely uh, see a lot of attention being placed on uh, transparency and sustainability these days. We are having a lot of uh, uh, queries, a lot of interest from our clients. In helping them, they ask us to help them um, basically invest in emerging markets with a focus on sustainability on ESG. So there's a lot of demand out there that's very positive. Uh, how do we do that? We've been doing a lot of work, for example, with JP Morgan in trying to rebalance their indices and no longer use simply... Uh, essentially GDP measures and amount of issuance out of a country to determine these countries' weight into these benchmark indices, but also to include ESG considerations, so their performance in ESG terms in determining the weight that these countries will have in these indices in such a way that over time you can hope to encourage a virtuous cycle of international capital going to the better performing ESG countries from an ESG perspective, rather than purely from an issuance or GDP size. Uh, That's work in progress. That work includes a lot of indicators that look at transparency issues. More can be done on the sustainability side, arguably. But what it also does is that despite it maybe not being fully capturing these indices as they are, is to encourage investors when they do have these discussions with countries they invest in to ask those questions when they come in roadshows in London you get the chance to meet the government delegation, you can ask what are you doing from a fiscal perspective to make your debt more sustainable, what's your public financial management system like, how are you capturing your expenditures and your revenues in such a way that you can project your cash flow going forward and meet those debt repayments and so on. And so those, those considerations are not just part of the way that we as investors make decisions for our portfolios to meet the demands of our end clients, but also increasingly featuring conversations that before were purely, what's your fiscal deficit? How is that going to go? Yes, no, boom, done. So there's more of a discussion going on. And I think that in and of itself, although it'll take time, it's positive to see developing in the long run.
1: Okay, thank you. That's very helpful, uh, Julia. So um, it's definitely more complex, uh, more players are around, more, uh, more uh, different instruments are, um, are around. Um, but also a uh, positive message that you uh, think about transparency within the ESG context and that that leads to uh, helpful discussions uh, going forward. So that's a, sort of a positive message there. Um, you mentioned also about local uh, uh, local debt markets and no doubt the next speaker, uh, to will talk about this. Um, so you've been working on local debt issues within TCX for a decade now? or uh, But can you tell us a bit more about your experience in, in local currency lending and whether that is helping um, to avoid uh, a, a sustainable... Uh, or to avoid a debt build-up? I'd love
3: to. Thank you. Um, so it's always good, if you if you look at sustainable, transparent lending, that we take a couple of steps back. And I always like to start with what was once, let's say, the... Uh, fundament of uh, TCX, um, and it was a paper by Green Housman and Panizza uh, <coughs> called um, The Original Sin, and the original sin in financing actually referred to the fact that a lot of governments, but also, also companies, cannot get access to long-term debt abroad in their own currency. So the majority of the governments in Africa we're looking at today They either do not borrow, hence do not invest in infrastructure, do not invest long term, or they are forced to borrow in the currency that is not their own. So by being forced in a currency that is not their own, they're effectively forced into currency speculation. That's normally not the primary business of a government. Um, And it's interesting to look at it from the outside, Because if we would look at any Western government, uh, for example, being here in London, let's assume that the government of the United Kingdom would have 70% of its indebtedness in the Swiss franc. I mean, no rational thinking economist would allow for that. There is no way. It is hugely dangerous. It is pure speculation and your government financing becomes a function of international financial volatility. It becomes purely a function of the volatility of currency markets. Yet, we think this is the way to finance African governments. Because ultimately, and that's an important one, even if you look back at the basis of our Bretton Woods institutions, the first loan ever made by the World Bank was to the government of France in US dollars. <coughs> and that was not because the French government needed US dollars, that was because the balance sheet of the World Bank was in US dollars. So if you'd be looking today at the lending, be it from IDA, ODA, all of the OECD guidelines are based on dollar thinking. So one of the core issues we have in terms of sustainable and transparent lending is donor-centric thinking. We have dollar balance sheets, we have pound balance sheets, so we're definitely not willing to take the currency risk. We push it down to our clients. I mean, at the end of the day, beggars can't be choosers. So I think this is one of the key issues that should be addressed and actually is addressable. And even the IMF, we use IMF data to do research whether this is addressable. And it is as long as you have maximum diversification and you use local interest rates. So instead of offloading the currency risk to the recipient governments, you can, instead of doing a 30-year dollar loan to the government of Sierra Leone at 0.5%, also issue a 10 to 12 percent Sierra Leone Leone debt. It allows the government to actually go into long-term financial planning because they know for the next 30 years, yes, I'll be paying 12 percent on my Leone instead of the 0.5 percent on my (coughs) dollar, but I can actually predict the cash flows needed. Actually, Sri is a fantastic example. In 1516, Leone depreciated 50%. For the government, the Ministry of Finance, it means they need to double their tax income to pay back the same amount of debt. The vast majority is IDA, to pay back the same amount of aid. So whereas the original purpose of this IDA, ODA, OECD and all the other lending is to create economic growth, a significant side effect is actually that it causes economic instability. It forces the governments into short-term crisis mode and, as we heard earlier this morning, it takes the energy away from capital investments (coughs) because... Short-term crisis needs short-term solutions. So we do not engage in capital expenditures. No, we postpone them. Hence, this is one of the key questions, I think, if we look at sustainable and transparent lending to be addressed, because it is solvable. And there, I'll briefly uh, share some of the experience we've had as TCX. Currently, we have a long exposure on about 50 or 60 uh, local currencies globally. Um, We're partly financed by governments, the vast majority of our funding comes from the like of the uh, multilateral and bilateral development banks. And our purpose in life is to allow them to lend to their private sector clients in local currency. Well, by having one, diversification, and two, using local base rates, we have generated uh, 2% IRR, which is a pretty lame investment. But in terms of solving the currency risk issue, um, it's a relatively well-proven model, as we
1: started in 2007.
3: Um, I think okay. I'll, I'll leave it to that.
1: Thank you. That's uh, that's very good. So um, countries shouldn't be having uh, uh, debt uh, that, that is 70% de- denominated in foreign currency because that's not a sensible strategy so it needs to be more local currency and and uh, you've been sort of successful <laughs> in, in, in in help in helping uh, uh, countries um, I mean I think it's, it's it's a particular issue so we looked a bit at, uh, at the Ghanaian bond issue issuance uh, a couple of years ago and there the sort of the if you thought about the um, uh, the, the local rates um, that uh, rates that need to be paid were about uh, 15 to 20 percent on on uh, foreign uh, bonds, international sovereign bonds. It was about five to seven percent at, at that at that stage. Um, but uh, but having devaluations of uh, 10 15 percent a year uh, would do away with with quite a, quite a lot of the um, uh, of the advantages in going to foreign currency and and sort of your uh, you're thinking about local currency. So having a, having. A local currency lending is, is perhaps a, a, a useful way forward, and I, I suppose we can we can be discussing that a bit more in, in detail. Um, so that's been really helpful to think about a private perspective, perhaps also sort of a public-private uh, perspective that TCX is. Um, let's now go to um, uh, one campaign and Jamie Drummond, and uh, so you've been in the uh, uh, discussing debt issues for a long, long time um, and also uh, are discussing a lot about transparency uh, as well. and so perhaps you can take the two together what is what's the role of transparency in in helping to avoid the next uh, 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 unsustainable debt pileup and um, and perhaps other issues that you'd like to bring to the table on this uh, this topic about uh, Uh, sustainable and transparent lending. Uh,
4: Thanks Derek and uh, thanks ODI for organising this and uh, uh, apologies I might have to spend one or two minutes just giving a bit of background and then I'll I'll go more to the direct subject here. Um, uh, So I have been working on this for for a long time as of others in the room I know Um, but um, about 20 years ago 80,000 people were organised by civil society groups from around the world to surround the G8 summit in Birmingham, and it led to one thing led to another. We uh, we ran a successful campaign that led to HIPPEC, the enhanced version, um, and MDRI, um, and then further and later on, countries like Liberia. And I remember Antoinette talking with you ten years ago, and one of my favourite quotes of all time was when we described it as an IMFing outrage that um, uh, Liberia was excluded from the uh, program for a period. So it was great to see you then join the IMF after that. Um, <clears throat> and um, and uh, the, the great irony, I, I, I mean, I just the elephant in the room, is that we all were here having all of these exact conversations, apart from some of the, the new, uh, uh, admittedly, the new range of, of creditors in the room. Um, uh, but we were having so many of the same conversations 20 years ago and the purpose of campaigning around the year 2000 as it was, was to uh, evoke a unique amnesty moment, something by definition that only happens every 2,000 years Um, sorry, 1,000 years. Um, um, But then if you go into the sub-details of the Leviticus paragraph uh, from the Bible, it's actually every 49 years and then the 50th year was the jubilee year and so you see in fact these debt crises around. And then in fact maybe half that Maybe a debt crisis every 25 years is, is acceptable. Um, if it is indeed the case, and I think it is, uh, that we're entering one uh, at risk, at high risk of entering one now, that's every 10 to 12 years. So the, the hu- nuclear half-life of crises is getting shorter and shorter. Um, and um, it's avoidable, um, but we are about to not avoid it. Um, and why is that happening? Um, And I think you touched a lot on it in in some of the previous discussions, but Africa has a financing imperative uh, for sure. There's an extraordinary youth boom that demands an extraordinary financing package. Um, And uh, the world and African leadership needs to put that together. And that requires brilliant borrowing and brilliant lending. Um, uh, Debt has got to be part of that Uh, package. Um, But too many of these debts have been uh, uh, terribly directed and unfortunately in the context of very bad governance, uh, frankly corrupt. Um, And that's because they've been allowed to uh, exist in contravention to the deals that were agreed which were all about transparency and accountability. You know, it was supposed to all occur under fair and transparent processes and We did not campaign hard enough to enforce that that be part of the ecosystem more uh, deliberately at the time. Um, And we trusted too many people in the uh, international financial institutions and around the world to do their part to monitor the situation more closely. Um, So here we are. Um, There are some solutions, and they need to be enacted uh, very quickly. Um, many of you already know what they are, but for example, the International Institute of Finance has put together these transparent lending covenant, um, and uh, the exact wording has not been revealed to the world. It needs to be. Uh, very quickly, is anyone here from Credit Suisse, HSBC, Standard Chartered, Citi, any of the other institutions?
5: Hello? i not from of the institutions, but I'm a- holding the pen
4: on the principles. Thank you. And
5: um they will be revealed. When? Um, uh, I'm not sure yet. <laughs> when those bags say we can, they
4: will be, but in the next few weeks, they'll be shared with the G20. This is a very important moment. <laughs> um, and this is what campaigning is also about. Thank you. Um, so, uh, in my mind, the conference just <laughs> uh, did a very good thing. Um, so, um, we need to work together to help those be the best they can be, get them agreed as quickly as possible uh, by the G20 and elsewhere, because every single day is a possible new Mozambique debacle. Every single day they do not exist. Um, Some other uh, malfeasance could be taking place, and we do need a sense of urgency about it. These kinds of conversations are extraordinarily boring, as we all know. Uh, Sorry, we are all fascinated by it, but most of the world is not. Um, It is dry, it is technocratic, it is anti-democratic, therefore, because it is so dull. People don't find it very hard to be interested in these incredibly important issues we're discussing. And that's why the year 2000 was very helpful, because it forced a very boring process into feeling like it had to give birth and actually have a result. Um, We need to create that sense of drama to front load the sense of drama before the crisis occurs. And and we need everyone in the room's help and this conference's help and ideas to dramatize the actions required to avoid this crisis actually occurring because it is inexorably going in that direction right now. Um, So uh, over this short period of time, um, those principles revealed, worked on, and agreed uh, by the private sector and then the public sector creditors um, uh, would would be extremely important. Thank you. Um, The other part of this is This information needs to live somewhere in an ecosystem that makes sense, that people can easily use. You know, the anti-corruption campaign is in Mozambique. The investigative journalists are risking their lives trying to find this information out and hold people accountable. So it behooves us to make it as easy as possible for them to do their jobs by making this information as accessible and available as possible. So whether it be the IMF or some other institution, we need to ensure that there is someone providing that global public good so that the, the intermediaries using information um, as well as the markets can, can access the information and make the right choices and hold the right people accountable. So there's a couple of things. It's, it's, it's about the guidelines. It's about some deadlines to force things to happen, because otherwise they won't. Um, and, and, and the G20s and in, in the spring meetings, and there will be other moments. And it's about helping our, our colleagues on the front line, front line get the information
1: they need in good time. I'm sure we'll come back to some of this, so I'll finish yeah. there. Okay, well, thank you, Jamie. So, uh, a warning to us all. Um, so we are thinking; uh, we need to be thinking about the next debt crisis. We w- perhaps walking into it, and uh, it is avoidable, as you um, uh, as you say. Um, and so we need to listen to to also. I think what you're <laughs> what you're what you uh, you're you're saying, and it's really important to think about transparency. We need to be more transparent and. Uh, probably will give you the, the word later on uh, a bit to explain a little bit more on what exactly is uh, um, uh, you're, you're thinking about. Um, very good. So um, let's go to the next speaker, um, which is thinking a bit more about um, uh, uh, sort of also cyclical debt. Um, and you know no doubt are going to tell us that it's not just cyclical issues, also structural issues. But it seems like a very good idea to think about DDP indexed uh, uh, bonds, so that basically you lend and and you allow governments to pay back more when when they're doing well, and you p- and you let them pay less uh, when they're not uh, when it's not going well in the country. So that seems to be like an issue, and we've been working on that uh, 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 for quite some time. Stephanie Griffith Jones has been a, a research associate here at ODI working on these these issues. So we'd like to hear from you a bit more about a renewed. Uh, momentum behind this, and how this can uh, perhaps help us to uh, to avoid uh, uh, un- um, sort of unsustainable debt pileup in African countries.
6: Thank you, thank you very much uh, for having me. Yeah, so um, I-, I had some slides with um, with graphs, but uh, if they're not, uh, it's not possible to mount them. That's. To- is it this? No, this is this is no, my phone. telephone. Yeah, oh, oh, okay. Um, I don't know how. uh, Oh, there you are. Uh, So, uh, anyhow, this is. um, I think this is. uh, That's either a country in uh, the grips of terrible debt, or or what's going to happen to me if I overstep my seven minutes. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, um, So, uh, what what I wanted to talk about was uh, uh, basically how uh, can sovereigns deal with uh, uh, the challenge uh, of rising debt, and in particular, consider uh, some. uh, some uh, contingent uh, instruments. I'm going to focus more on GDP-linked bonds, uh, only because this is what I've worked uh, on for the last uh, uh, three years with the team of the Bank of England and the uh, market participants, one of whom is here, Salah uh, Griffin. Uh, and um, we, uh, we try to sort of regenerate the discussion that's been around by circulating a, a legal term sheet and uh, to basically have uh, the market and issuers tell us what they thought about it, or what, what, what it would be like to issue this. Um, and the debate has been actually, I think, very useful. And, and it has uh, 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 you know, lots of very interesting things have come out. At the, uh, my last slide has a, a, a set of references for those who want to, to read more on that. Uh, but I'm also going to tell you a little bit more about other contingent, uh, d- uh, uh, contingent instruments. So, I don't know what I'm doing there, I Okay, let me just put them all uh, here. So, there are basically um, uh, three uh, policy aims. The first is uh, for these contingent uh, instruments, the first is to increase the, the fiscal space of sovereign emissions uh, in times of uh, economic downturn. So that is very important because by doing so you avoid uh, defaults and defaults are always very costly uh, because you know they just don't affect the sovereign affect the whole the whole economy um, and um, and also by by bringing them in uh, we you 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 bring a better pricing for the fixed rate bonds uh, uh, we think uh, the second thing is that they uh, they focus uh, on the long term. Um, a potential of an economy. These are uh, GDP-linked bonds. Are uh, the proper bonds, and they they fluctuate both the principal and the interest, the coupon they pay, they fluctuate with uh, the movements of the GDP. Uh, but they are meant to be long-term, 15-20 year bonds, and therefore the investor uh, really buys into. It's like buying a share in a country. You know, it wants to prosper uh, uh, and uh, support the country long-term, uh, and so it aligns the. Uh, the interests of the sovereigns uh, 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 with uh, long-term investing, and and it, it forces the sovereign to focus on long-term economic policies. Um, so, uh, and we think that this is true for both uh, domestic and international investors. Now, very important for the other topic that we're considering, namely transparency, is that this depends very much on accuracy and reliability of data. Uh, and uh, the um, both issues and investors want reliability and and soundness of data, and uh, they uh, I- investors want uh, they to be able to compare. Now we think that this is very important because it also helps uh, the fixed rate bonds. You know, if you're a fixed rate uh, investor, by having more granular detail on what's happening in the economy, you can, you can price better your fixed rate bond. Um, so we think that this is also very important. And, and, and the, the IMF has uh, uh, you know, guidelines for uh, what, how you should be publishing uh, uh, GDP. And, um, and complying with that is, in a way, a uh, sends a signal uh, to the markets about the way the country intends to deal with uh, transparency. Now this is um, uh, I, I have some slides. I'll go very quickly. This is uh, su- simply shows you that if you have a fixed rate bond, uh, uh, your uh, you, you have a fixed uh, cost because the debt <coughs> service is constant. Um, uh, even forgetting the the, the, the currencies now, but your. Um, your 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 income depends on, on on your taxation, which depends basically on how well your economy is doing. So if you do not, uh, if your economy is not doing very well, uh, you can uh, be in a default, as shown in the under, uh, the uh, the graph on the left. Uh, whereas if you have something like GDP-linked bonds, well, your your debt repayment uh, your service sort of uh, goes down together with your income. So you avoid the default. That's, that's, that's the basic idea. Now here, I'm not going to go into detail the, uh, on this uh, uh, very much. Uh, this comes from a paper that the Bank of England has produced. Uh, on the left-hand side is developed economies, and, uh, and uh, the, uh, the, uh, on the right-hand side is, is um, developing economies. And it basically shows what the, um, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the stress, the outer limits where you would be if you had a fixed rate, or, or um, all your debt was fixed rate, or uh, GDP-linked. Um, uh, you know, it's all uh, the same currency. It's all domestic currency in our in our model. Uh, and even on the assumption that the GDP-linked bond is basically one percent more uh, coupon more than you know than than your uh, fixed-rate bond. So um, uh, I won't. Um, uh, uh, I won't go much on this. It's just basically to, to show that uh, you you do uh, the the elevated debt, debt stocks that we've seen in the world basically do require a solution. It's uh, all the more so in in in, in Africa, um, the with interest rates being also where they are and inflation unlikely to uh, be moving uh, again. Certainly, the hard currency is very very fast. So. Um, what are the other things that one could uh, have a, a look at? I mean, we've, we've looked at uh, with the, what we call the London term sheet. We looked at uh, GDP, but um, other uh, state contingent debt instruments are possible, and uh, variables uh, such as commodity prices uh, or COCOs, uh, specific events occurring that disrupt the economy that allow, say, for maturity extensions. So these are also possible, um, and. Um, the, uh, uh, now I want to say to pick up one, one uh, last thing um, uh, that uh, before I, I, I finish, uh, because there was a point I think in the last discussion where people just said, well, all this sort of investment, capital investment, increases GDP but doesn't increase you know immediately um, the revenues, and so uh, they're still it's still problematic to to um, pay uh, uh, service debt. Uh, so it may be that GDP-linked bonds, for this reason, would not be appropriate for uh, uh, all uh, African countries. However, it se- seems to me that still making s- small issues and uh, um, servicing them and making the appropriate disclosures could still uh, uh, be a signal for how the country intends to manage its, its public finances. Uh, and in, uh, on the side of it, depending on the economy of the country, we could use other state contingent debt instruments, based, for instance, on commodities. Mm-hmm. So, thank you very much.
1: Um, I mean, just just one issue. Of course, the um, uh, I mean, it's t- tricky to get data on on GDP and so on, and particularly in, in developing countries where you got revaluations re-evaluation, of fifty percent, sixty percent in particular countries. But just in terms of these 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 instruments, have they actually been used? So, if no. you, you've worked on Greece, yeah. for example. Would that have yeah. been um, uh, would it be would have worked there?
6: Yeah. The, these instruments, the ones that we are uh, trying to propose, they have not been used. And uh, thank you that I should have should have made this clear. This is just simply a design. Um, they have not been used. What we have uh, used was uh, uh, what what has been used is is warrants. And you, warrants are usually issued in the context of a restructuring uh, to offer an upside to the people who have suffered the haircut. Uh, but warrants are highly bespoke. <laughs> Um, these, uh, what we have in mind with the GDP imports is to have something which is fairly standardised and uh, almost, you know, pr- be a new uh, and recognisable, uh, uh, you know, instrument that uh, that will stand on its own. Yeah. We still do not have it, but uh, we think that for the reasons I mentioned at the beginning, it would be, you know, very very useful uh, because it would provide, it would help with sustainability and it will also help with transparency. Good,
1: thanks. Um, so we've heard about GDP index bonds. Um, what other financial innovations are there, uh, Judith, to help us with uh, uh, to avoid an unsustainable <laughs> debt pile-up?
7: Um, so um, I wanted to. Um, uh, uh to spend the time here talking about policy and policy support, and particularly um, in the context of the rise of private finance, which I think we've seen discussed here, and particularly the fact that private finance is becoming much more predominant um, in uh, both sovereign debt, but also uh, I don't think it's been particularly brought out, but if you look at the data, it's also in, in the corporate borrowing, uh, 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 corporate finance markets in developing countries as well. So we're seeing a significant expansion of private private finance. Um, and what it means for that to be sustainable. Now, some of those themes we've already hit on, but the the criteria that I would put forward to describe sustainable private finance would be very broadly that it supports structural transformation. Uh, But in order to do that, it needs to be cheap, it needs to be long-term, and it needs to be stable. And stability here is ideally anti-cyclical, but certainly not pro-cyclical, and also low risk. I'll come a little bit uh, uh, more to what I mean by that. Um, in a moment, I think in the context of, of debt um, sustainability and, and private finance and it's the riskiness of it, it's important though for us to understand that the majority of private finance remains in FDI. In fact, more than fifty percent of all uh, international capital flows to uh, Sub-Saharan Africa in the last ten years has been in FDI, and in many ways that's an ideal form of finance. It, of course, is quite sticky. It tends to be low cost, and it often goes directly into private private finance, which helps with economic growth. So, you know, a little bit of moderation when we look at some of the debt ratios. Uh, FDI is of course a very important thing to support from policy and we're seeing a lot of it still. But some of the new finance that we've been discussing in this conference is, is far from ideal and I think Greg did a great job of describing the problems with it in the last session, which is it's expensive, it's pro-cyclical and in particular it's highly risky because it's predominantly, in fact in many uh, in things like the eurobonds, exclusively in hard currency. And so this is almost the opposite from the sort of finance that we would like to see. Now, I think if we take the assumption, though, that we need private finance, and I think there's a, you know, there is a consensus around the need for private finance to meet, meet the SDGs, we need to turn around the sort of finance that we are seeing mobilised to make it sustainable under those definitions. <coughs> um, I'm going to suggest that there's probably two things that policy can do to help try to support that and be innovative. Um, The first is that we need to broaden out the scope of uh, the investors who are uh, providing finance from international capital markets. And in particular, there's a need to uh, mobilise finance from low-risk and low-return investors. And that really predominantly means institutional investors. The kind of flows that we've seen at the moment have been for much higher risk investors. They tend to be uh, frontier market investors or private equity. and you know they, they you know we, we shouldn't necessarily be negative about them in the sense that they were prepared to take the risk, but they are high cost, and many of them many of those flows are also post-cyclical. Um, but for institutional investors to be mobilised, we need to deliver products to them that meet their needs. And these are investors who have high levels of fiduciary responsibilities towards um, often small investors in devel- developed countries. Uh, uh, you can see here, uh, uh, you can look at my paper if you'd like to read this a little bit more. The problems or the barriers are fairly, uh, I think, established. Uh, lack of bankable projects, political and FX risks and product design. Uh, but the most um, uh, common response to this is simply not to invest. So we need to do a much better job of tackling these issues for them. Sorry, the um, Probably there's two things that we can do for policy. One is um, uh, blended finance. Now, of course, blended finance um, is, uh, has been uh, discussed uh, extensively probably in the last couple of years in policy circles. We've actually seen a rather low level of mobilisation of private finance. Um, the ratio is about 70 cents for every dollar of, pr- of public finance. Uh, the, f- to meet the SDGs, we need a ratio of $4. So we're probably at about 20% of what is needed. Um, one success. Um, uh, I, I wanted to highlight a couple of success stories there around this. Uh, one has been uh, around the creation of large funds, uh, which are either syndicated or securitized uh, products. Uh, this was one with MCCP uh, that the IFC um, uh, uh, mobilised uh, more than five billion dollars, which obviously a pretty significant um, level of investment. Uh, IFC were, uh, supported this obviously by structuring it. But also by being the first tier loss leaders. Uh, we would need to see many more of these type of funds. We are seeing them being discussed, but as I said, not many have actually uh, triggered investment. Um, uh, so, this is one area that we should focus on. Um, we also need to see much greater uh, level uh, or um, facilitation of risk management. And this is risk management both for um, issuers, uh, so for investors, but also for issuing countries and for developing countries. Uh, I won't go into this too much either because we've just seen a couple of great examples of innovation around this uh, TCX, uh, particularly to tackle the problem with hard currency. Um, I can't overemphasise the importance of this. Many of the uh, countries we're seeing in debt distress uh, have had their problems um, uh, increase very significantly, not by just the level of debt that they're taken on, but by the revaluation of that debt relative to their their local currencies. So I can mention (coughs) Nigeria... Uh, Zambia, Ghana, all have had their currencies pummeled. Uh, it's originated in um, commodity risk. And it was interesting that you picked up that a variation on the GDP, GDP-linked bond could be around c- uh, commodity markets. Um, but you know their debt-to-GDP uh, ratios have been uh, hugely affected by the fact that they took on hard currency de- debt and it was impossible to... Um, uh, hedge effectively. Uh, it's also an issue, a, a problem for investors because they are unable to effectively risk manage their uh, risk preferences around hard currency debt uh, and their versus local currency debt. And so something like TCX, which allows them to trade in and out of risk and, and, and adjust to their uh, risk profiles, is also very important. Um, lastly, I'm going to suggest, though, that if this is to happen, we need to see a lot more focus around partnerships um, of particularly IFIs, uh, but also um, elsewhere in other forms of policy around the needs of private investors. Now, um, I know some people might feel that that isn't the role of um, policy institutes, but I think it is essential that we are much more um, – we have products and policy that understands the needs of investors in order to induce investment, particularly, as I say, <coughs> low-cost, um, low-risk low investment investors. Um, and that really takes a lot more flexibility. You can see some of the points i put up here uh, that maybe you can, if you'd like, have a question, you can put through. But um, we need to see a shift in policy and much more innovation in policy if we are to see stable and sustainable private finance um, for development.
1: Okay. thank you. So uh, we've had a a range of presentations now on uh, on the lender's perspective and uh, quite a few issues came up and uh, so quite a number of issues that we can uh, we can discuss um i mean i draw uh, out a few of them Um, one issue is around transparency and uh, vis-a-vis the complexity that that we're all talking about so debt markets um, and the debt composition is has become much more complex uh, and there are much more complex instruments now there are many more players um yet we also demand more transparency, we need more transparency because otherwise we are sleepwalking into the next uh, death, death, death crisis. So that, that particular, uh, that's a conundrum uh, that we probably need to unpack a bit more. Um, uh, what, what do we think around, around this? How can we force more transparency? Is it working uh, so far? What, what else can be done? Secondly, uh, there are guidelines out there. And um, there are voluntary guidelines around ESG, for example, and some of those have been shown to be working. Uh, there are more discussions now that we all like to have, um, uh, or like to see happening. Uh, so BlackRock was discussing this. Um, are these discussions happening enough? And are they happening only in the those markets that are maybe uh, the predictable ones, and and the ones that we really want to have a discussion? They're not taking place there. So that may be another uh, discussion. And then we had a discussion of a range of different instruments for different purposes. So we had the TCX funds, for example, uh, discussing about particular issues. We had GDP index bonds um, as, a, as a particular uh, issue, and there are others as well that have, have pros and cons. And then you also mentioned securitization, syndication, and that might turn it perhaps even into other more complex uh, lending instruments as well, but at the same time, um, they can help us along. So we probably want to discuss those. Um, as well now before i ask the audience uh, to uh, think about questions uh, there is um, uh, somebody who would like to give the word first is thomas fage um so you're here you're from uh, the european commission and perhaps you'd like to offer your your, your first reflections on uh, on what you've just heard
8: yeah thank you very much um I'm working at the European Commission in the Budget Support Unit, uh, responsible for public finance management and macroeconomics. And uh, the European Commission is not a lender. Um, all what uh, all our aid is in grant, uh, but um, we are of course very much uh, also concerned by the debt situation. Um, because our preferred instrument is budget support. Um, 38% of our aid is, uh, of our bilateral aid uh, country programs, is through budget support. Um, And uh, macroeconomic stability, uh, debt sustainability is one of the uh, eligibility criteria. And uh, secondly also, we are providing, uh, we have the European investment plan and we are providing blending. Um, the European Investment Plan foresees a, a new guarantee of uh, a total of 1.5 billion euros to uh, trigger additional investments in partner countries um, on concessional terms. Uh, to which we provide grants to European financing institutions so to make projects uh, project financing concessional. So this is of course important for us, and uh, in this context, we are also uh, the Commission is also. Um, Collaborating within the G20 uh, group, for example, um, my uh, points are: uh, I would first of all like to to thank the panelists for the interesting uh, contributions and perspectives. And um, my points are a bit um, related to um, one: one would be on the transparency agenda. How could we? What else would need to be done? How could we ensure uh, compliance? Um, Uh, For example, um, we were talking a uh, lot about uh, lacking data. Uh, We have to work on expanding that reporting, but on the other side we also have uh, quite a lot of data existing. Would it help for increasing uh, transparency to um, build something like a central database uh, that would be uh, publicly available? Um, what would the private sector think about that? What are limits between um, transparency and, uh, <coughs> and ensuring competition? Um, and then on the issue of uh, compliance, how could we build in, for example, uh, checks and balances in that um, lenders are uh, obliged to report and at the same time borrowers are obliged to report in a way that would enable that would enable cross checks about uh, about uh, loans, uh, a little bit like uh, the the model of the Extractive Industries Initiative, that would allow cross checks where we could um, enhance uh, reliability of data. Um, that would be uh, that would be one line of. Um, of thoughts and what could be, what would you think could be the role also of the um, yeah, regul- re- of the regulators um, um, in this on this transparency agenda, um, and um, yeah, uh, then uh, for um, the private sector. Um, we had the issue this morning about uh, the point about Mozambique and uh, what struck me in the Mozambique case is that um, the um, loan did not the loans did not even uh, pass by the parliament so it's an accountability question here how can we ensure that also the private sector and i think they are the Guidelines. Uh, the voluntary guidelines for the private sector have to be sufficiently concrete. That the private sector also respects um, uh, the regulations of the partner country in terms of accountability and a loan approval, um, and insists uh, on that as an additional as an additional check. And then finally, I have a question on the. Um, um uh, GDP indexed uh, uh, bonds, um, how do you deal with the issue of moral hazard uh, in that uh, in case where a country has a, a, a GDP indexed protection, that may be the discipline in terms of uh, uh, macroeconomic stability and fiscal consolidation, uh, what would, would deteriorate a bit.
1: So there are some very good points there uh, already to start off with. I mean, although you don't give grants, you can work with with lenders, and uh, so we were working uh, at some point on this fee flex uh, 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 instrument, where you think about IMF uh, working together with the Commission, for example, around uh, around these issues, and and it was really appreciated by some of the ACP African Caribbean and Pacific states um, that that was being done. So. Uh, but some pointers as well, and questions really to the panel, so that 's been really helpful now i 'd like to ask um, um, the audience uh, if you have uh, questions, perhaps you can uh, introduce yourself um, uh, br- briefly and then make a, a point or a question. Uh, I will take about three or four and then go back to the to the panel and i 'll start on that side uh, so on my left uh, of the audience, so uh, mark, you were first.
9: Hi, my name is Mark
4: Boland. I'm an African economist for Bloomberg Economics here in London. So my question is on these uh, GDP-linked bonds. Uh, I believe there are some in place already. Uh, You know more about them. But I just want to ask primarily Yanis and Julia, what is the investor interest in this? I mean, it (coughs) makes a lot of sense in many ways to have these instruments, but I personally get the impression that not a lot of investors are, uh, you know, prepared to take on this risk or know how to price this risk. So I'm guessing you've been in touch with, you know, discussed these matters with some of these uh, investors and potential investors, and I'd just like to hear your view on that. Thank you.
1: Good. That's a good question. Does um, so anybody else would like to ask a question? Uh, so there are two points already on GDP index bonds. Um, if there's nobody on that side, then I'll probably go uh, perhaps on the, uh, behind there, the lady at the back.
0: I'm Starla Griffin from Slaney Advisors. So I'm here um, supporting Yanis on the GDP-linked bond issue. But my question is actually slightly different. Um, With respect to FDI investment, I agree that that's the best kind of investment for um, the African continent. But that creates risks as well in terms of debt when you have arbitration (laughs) claims that grow out of some of that foreign direct investment. And um, you have African sovereigns whose debt profiles um, increase dramatically when there are um, arbitration judgments issued against them. And I, don't, I have not seen much um, in terms of fora, fora discussing debt that is looking at um, debt financing on the one hand from the market and then debt, sovereign debt that develops as a result of arbitration judgments, and I think that there that needs to be a discussion that is um, comes together in some fora. I don't know about if it's today, because um, I'm not sure that the attorneys general in the African countries are talking to the debt management offices. I'm not sure that the creditors who are buying the bonds are aware um, necessarily of the liabilities that might be existing. I'm not sure that the disclosure that you see in some of the bond documentation is, is taking account some of the, these liabilities. And I'm not even sure how the IMF is dealing with these, if they're still considered contingent liabilities, even when judgments are rendered. Um, and I think there are a lot of issues that, that are surrounding these FDI-prompted arbitrations. So that's just something I wanted to raise as, as an additional issue.
1: Yeah. Okay. Later. Thank you, um, Gentleman Here. Hi, I'm I'm Xiao from China. Uh, I just wish to know for the African contest, uh, infrastructure needs uh, is very uh, is sometimes very hard to meet because of the uh, the loans can uh, can. Last many many decades, and the returns might not be so uh, appealing. So I don't know, from your perspective, how to encourage the lenders to invest more on um,
10: infrastructure, but without incurring huge debt for the local governments.
1: Mm. Yeah, I mean that's a very good point as well. Around uh, uh, so some infrastructure pieces are are really uh, profitable, and we think about telecommunications, but others, perhaps railways, might not get a, a huge. Uh, 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 sort of financial rate of return, perhaps economic rate of return might be, might be much higher there. And so then that's, uh, that might be an, a particular issue. Um, uh, so the, f- the final question here, uh, um, and then, then we go back to the to the panel um, to, to answer the questions.
5: Okay. Uh, Abhi Kader from Sheffield University here, a senior lecturer in international business. Uh, my question is to, the, uh, to Judith on uh, TCX, uh, the success stories that you mentioned. But uh, evidence so far shows that in local currency bonds, there is limited foreign participation. So are we very happy to hear if you have any suggestions what countries can do? I think this is at the heart of uh, even the first question, which is really linked with uh, GDP indexed bonds, Uh, but local currency bonds.
1: Thank you. Um, so I'd, I, we'll come back to you in a minute. Uh, let's first go to the to the panel. So there are a range of uh, of questions around um, uh, transparency and data. So uh, a d- uh, a database um, and, uh, and what can regulators do? So something about uh, about transparency there. Um, there are questions around the private sector interest in DDB index uh, bonds um, uh, and uh, and and some other issues around moral hazard, <coughs> DDB index bonds. So. Uh, and, and then some specific questions also to, uh, to Judith as well. Um, so maybe let's go first to Julian Yannis about GDP index bonds, uh, the question there, and the, inter- the private sector interest in this. Uh,
2: sure. Um, so what I would say is that, um, so Yanis was explaining that these are, uh, they've worked a lot on these new instruments and they haven't yet literally been used in the sense that we, uh, as a private sector, have been exposed to. Uh, GDP and oil warrants in cases of debt restructuring, but this uh, new set of GDP-linked instruments is yet to be uh, actually tested. To the extent that there can be a market out there that can be formed around these instruments, I'm pretty sure the private sector average investor uh, will be interested in Uh, having a go at this and investing in this quite obviously as you noted there's an issue of pricing that's really how you form a market how do you price these instruments and for that essentially you have you have two problems you have the issue of data uh, availability and reliability that we sort of touched on before and that cannot be overemphasized Uh, if you have a GDP linked instrument you need to know that you are relying on Reliable GDP data that comes out of uh, countries you may not know very well firsthand and may be experiencing all sorts of data issues uh, in and of themselves. So that complicates the matter. And the second thing is liquidity. Uh, at the start, any of these instruments will most likely be rather illiquid uh, single issues, which will make it difficult for any private sector player to really price this and, and create a market around it. So, to that extent, any uh, sort of program around uh, international financial institutions supporting this with a more fully fledged uh, program that supports these new in- instruments could be a way to create a market. I'm thinking also of a slightly different instrument, but something that was touched on before, uh, Ghana Eurobond a few years back, a couple of years ago, uh, They benefited from a partial guarantee from international finance institutions, one in particular, um, that was kind of Shot down as as, uh, a not particularly successful issuance out there. Uh, I think it's uh, partly because there was no way to price that appropriately in the market. It was one of a kind. If there is instead a program of a number of these countries and the Internet, the IFI backing this comes forward with a well marketed well presented program that explains how this is going to work that is going to touch a number of countries that is going to develop in this way in so many years and hence creates a liquid market I am pretty sure the private sector investors will get involved in that because they'll be able to price those instruments and present them to their end investors uh, accordingly at the end of the day most of us run funds that have daily liquidity requirements in which anything like uh, the large uh, post office of a GA country as well as retail investors in another emerging markets where one of our local distributors are invested in these people can come up to me any day and redeem their investments I need to be able to provide that liquidity so to that extent that liquidity needs to be available for anybody to get involved from a private sector perspective
1: so you would like to see a pilot that can show the way that it can that it
2: can work Rather than a single pilot, a program. program. So instead of a Ghana uh, mm-hmm. backed issuance, a number of countries with this program and a plan for several issues mm-hmm. going forward. Okay.
1: okay, very good. And on the, uh, the, while we have you here, uh, on the point of the, the database that, uh, that the so European Commission was suggesting as a particular public good that might be able to help. Where,
2: where, where this issue? Yes, I mean it's a, it's a very positive uh, idea. Uh, the The issue uh, is always the same one: it's that availability and reliability, and the reporting more often than not really falls on the debtor country. Uh, so, to that extent, how to encourage? Um, Um, reporting and, again, reliable information being given is something that I'm not sure how we're grappling with. Uh, The case of Mozambique is a case in point. Uh, It's a country that is being often discussed because it was under an IMF program, presumably also mandated to report some of these debt initiatives to their very lenders this didn't come through. Uh, Leaving aside the private sector play into this, and how you noted, how did these gentlemen from investment banks sign on to deals without parliamentary approval? Well, that's something to ask their risk management uh, departments, because in-house, I'm pretty sure somebody should have asked some questions. So it's a complex issue. But at the end of the day, we're going back to individual responsibility, be it a country, a sovereign, or private sector lenders. And so to the extent that that can be enforced or encouraged, It's a thin
1: line. Okay. Uh, Janis, on this question around moral hazard and TDP index bonds, how how would you deal with moral hazard?
6: Well, um, um, data is obviously very important, uh, and um, we need to, the investor uh, needs to know that uh, the data are reliable, and uh, there's always a temptation that if things don't start going so well, uh, that uh, somehow the data will stop coming. Now, we, uh, I- in the proposal that we've done, we have an option, and it's just an option, of allowing if data cease coming uh, or if they cease to comply with the IMF standards for dissemination and, and the IMF keeps a, a record of, of who complies with the standards, uh, then um, after a certain time investors in this particular instrument would have the uh, right to basically call the bond, uh, you know, just put, put, put the bond back and ask for, for, for early payment on the basis of even an uplift on the previously reported GDP. So the way we have, we have proposed a solution to deal with this, we hope that uh, the, uh, if, it, if it ever comes to issues of this sort, this will, uh, there will be sufficient conf- confidence so that this will not, not happen. People will not need to put this particular provision, but that's how we deal with it. Maybe other solutions as well. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, if I may also respond to uh, investor interest, and it's a it's a a great question. I think it was very well uh, uh, answered. Thank you very much. We, we have, and a number of us, have uh, spoken with investors around, and indeed the concerns are the ones you've, you've heard. There's also a problem from the issuer side, because investors will, if you offer something which uh, has uh, these features, and, and particularly you solve the liquidity uh, problem, but the reliability of information obviously is, is, is very important, they will you'll find investors who <coughs> are interested in the product. Um, it is issuers who normally are reluctant so far, yet be- Why? Because there's a, the expectation is that they will pay a higher price uh, than f- in fixed rate bonds. And um, there's also, uh, they, they're afraid, uh, and especially I think if they first start with Africa, it would be different if, say, Canada were to be the first issuer. But if uh, because you know nobody will say well what what are they doing what's the novelty premium for Canada but if 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 an African country does it which especially if they don't have a good history for uh, transparency they may they they, you know there will be a fear that they will pay an initial big premium and the problem is always even for Canada that uh, debt management agencies um, are usually have a very narrow mandate of the cheapest possible financing. And the, you know the first time you're going to go out in the markets, you're probably going to pay uh, uh, more. It's going to look as if you pay more than fixed rate bonds, which are of course a different instrument. Um, so there is a, a problem also to uh, to overcome on the uh, on the on the supply side. Okay, thank you. I mean,
1: just uh, you mentioned data availability quite a number of times, and. Uh, so multiple regulators and perhaps Jamie also wants to come into this, this particular point So, cert- certainly given your remarks early on that there wasn't enough transparency so what, what are the steps that can be taken out to sort of get a step change in tra- transparency around these, the, uh, the lending issue well, So,
4: One of the things is <coughs> a lot of information is available and not particularly well used and then there's lots of information in these kinds of sub-components of the ecosystem that might be potentially transparent but they're not going to the right cafes or pubs, or th- 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 there's some sort of cultural problem where the communication is not occurring. And I say that, for example, it's recently come to our attention that the Mozambican uh, you know, debt issue, um, the RFP went to you know, all the likely banks. They all knew about it. Uh, one of them went with it. But why didn't one of the other 19 that didn't go with it say to a mate at the IMF, did you know about this? Why didn't that happen? What is the problem in the ecosystem that means that that piece of communication did not occur? And if it's not going to occur because people just think it's probably a good thing to let people know, it has to be mandated and enforced in some way if people aren't going to be responsible in that kind of circumstance. So, yes, we're going to have to have more and more of this. It would be great if everyone behaved well. (laughs) Um, But, yes, it's going to have to be mandated more and more. In terms of a public debt data registry, something like that, will have to happen. Um, Somewhere like the IMF will have to host it. Um, No one at the IMF wants to, because it's a lot of work, but someone's gonna have to do that job on behalf of providing this global public good. And um, beware all the unintended consequences of that. I'm sure there'll be lots of things to figure out in terms of what sort of data's uh, relevant there. Um, The the transparent lending covenant um, is a good start. Um, and it's, it's, it's got to be encouraged along. It's obviously a voluntary uh, process. Have no doubt that campaigners will be approaching places like the City of London to try and do something that's not voluntary. Um, and so the quicker and the better the private sector works out um, things that work, the better the ultimate mandatory measures might be. That's what we found from other things that we've worked on, other areas of transparency we've worked on, not in the debt space, like in extractives. Uh, so, um, yeah, yes, get ahead of this, invest in it now, don't slow it down, uh, put your best people on it, um, and be smart and, 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 and move on it as quickly as possible. Get the right norms together.
1: Very helpful. Um, then on the question from the Chinese gentleman, um, to inf- financing infrastructure, uh, which uh, which might be useful for growth and transformation of an economy, but might not yield a lot of uh, returns initially, um, and you need a lot of capital uh, for and foreign currency capital. So, what are the solutions there? How do you deal with that? Judith first, and then Riut, perhaps.
7: Um, uh, on infrastructure financing. Okay. Uh, infrastructure financing, I, think it, I mean, it's quite a complex question, um, and there's a number of parts to it, but some of the, the – the slide hit on some of the points. There's a number of critical barriers. One, of course, is, is the lack of bankable projects. Uh, the average time to prepare, uh, not even to uh, – not to build, but simply to prepare a project is six years. You know, most in private investors are, are not prepared to wait that long. Uh, the execution problems in developing countries are high, uh, there are projects that are highly susceptible to political risk. We mentioned there that it's absolutely one of the critical problems uh, that deters investment. Um, and so I think there's probably a, a financing model which is about the uh, uh, preparation and execution of a project must remain with IFIs primarily, possibly through blended finance. But there is an opportunity to then syndicate it where projects are mature and operational that's probably the, the short-term mm-hmm. answer. Um, yeah. an can, can I take a couple of other points? Do yeah, you, you want to you switch? Want to make, make one more point, uh, Yeah, let me, let me um, edit it because I want to hand over to uh, Red 2 on local currency. On the the, uh, transparency and sort of standards for private investors, I'm pretty cynical about it, Uh, and I'm cynical about it for a good reason and a bad reason. The good reason is we do need to understand that private investors are not accountable, you know, their accountability is not to developing countries. Their accountability is around their fiduciary responsibilities to investors and shareholders and to their regulators. And those constrain what they can do and they define their responsibilities and we need to be very respectful of that. That's not. say that they are within that context they are not making investments to lose money or not to have it repaid but that you know their accountability lies elsewhere and we need to be you know cognizant of that in in our dealings with them. Um, I think there's also a bad reason which is responsible investors will try to act responsibly and with these kind of uh, standards they will they will try to adhere to them but there are many who won't and of course it you know it tends to we've seen some examples of that and it's very difficult to enforce it on a voluntary basis I think <coughs> and um, so I think we need to look for the owners to remain with sovereigns which is you know tricky in this environment but uh, you know they need to 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 maintain primary responsibility around debt sustainability um, local currency bonds I think it's a really interesting question because the dream uh, you know the dream source of finance is of course local you know local capital markets and local investment um, there's structural barriers to the mobilization of um, of domestic investment particularly around per capita income you need surplus income to have you know have domestic savings being mobilised in scale, um, and that tends to come with middle-income countries rather than low-income countries, but I think there are also things that we can do around stimulating local um, uh, local currency bonds, including the the engagement of international investors. I mentioned hedging uh, of hard currency risk. Maybe Roger would like to pick up on that theme because, of course, TCX is one of the primary uh, providers of those type of hedges, particularly in in, uh, low-income countries where there are no other providers. Um, But we can also do things around uh, benchmark issues. Um, We've seen quite a number from a number of uh, uh, DFIs. IFC have been particularly um, uh, active in this space recently. Uh, And, of course, around pricing transparency, which helps encourage liquidity. Uh, an investment, um, including by um, uh, uh, high, predominantly high-risk investment, but also by some of the lower-risk investors as well.
1: Okay, thank you. isn't the answer local currency? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think
3: because I also, what you said is absolutely correct, that there is limited international interest in local currency bonds. But interestingly enough, there is quite some interest in the uh, market risk and return. So there are investors willing to invest in five-year 12% Tanzania shilling. They just don't want to touch the credit risk that goes with it. Because the credit risk also involves KYC (coughs) compliance. It's relatively small amounts, let alone for institutional investors. Just the thought they would have to switch off electricity in Rwanda because the government is not paying. I mean, the reputation risk that comes with it is huge. So they, they prefer to stay away from the credit risk and leave that to the MDBs and the DFIs because it's, it's, it's a specialized um, type of work. Now, interestingly, when we were running into, let's say, the limits of our capacity to grow based on our, our current capital, we were more and more actively seeking for ways to offload the currency risk. So we're sitting on this book of, I think, 25 African currencies, and actually we learned there is quite a number of investors out there that are willing to diversify in AAA-rated but five-year Tanzania shilling, Rwandan franc, even France FA they're willing to invest in those currencies. And actually, by creating <coughs> this market, you simultaneously create an offshore yield curve and price transparency. Um, this, is a rel- so this is a well-hidden secret. We started only two and a half years ago. It's a relatively uh, uh, new market. But in the meantime, together with our AAA rated investors, so specifically uh, FMO, IFC, and the EBRD, uh, by now we've issued over 50 uh, local currency bonds all the way to Papua New Guinea, Kina. So there is a market for local currency bonds, there's not a market for local credit risk. And I think by separating the two, uh, we can make big steps forward.
1: Mm. Yeah, okay. Very good. I think we're uh, perhaps a bit ne- negative around the, um, the guidelines that are and, and, and useful, but perhaps not. And I'd like also to discuss that. I, w- I would have thought that, that bond bondholders uh, wouldn't like to see haircuts um, c- coming up. And uh, um, so, uh, I mean, uh, Jamie was discussing... Uh, the debt crisis happens every 10 to 15 years. If you think about Argentina, which has de- partially defaulted, uh, about eight times in the last hundred years, uh, if that's happening in uh, in, in African countries, uh, I would have thought that there's a self-interest also uh, for for uh, those those uh, those lenders to be uh, to have uh, to be, be uh, cautious about about their approach. Let's, uh, let's take a final round of questions and then come back to the panel for, uh, for a one minute uh, uh, reflection on this, um, because we have about 10 or 15 uh, minutes to be discussing. So uh, let's go first on this side, so the lady uh, on the.
11: Hi. Hi, sorry, my name is Deborah Zanstra, so I'm a partner at Clifford Chance and I head the sovereign debt advisory practice and I'm advising the Institute of International Finance on their um, sovereign debt transparency principles, which um, did start life off as Credit Suisse um, covenant, but has now morphed, I think, into a sort of broader initiative that will hopefully see the light of day by way of some principles. And I think to say just, we've made good progress. Um, There's a lot of support um, among uh, banks to um, support the initiative. We have drafted some principles already. Um, We have had discussions uh, with IFIs, with G20, with a number of private sector participants beyond just um, commercial banks, and gathered views from people. Uh, And the IIF has set up an ad hoc um, working group to sort of take this work forward. Um, One of the things is that the working group has asked that the IIF also reach out to sovereigns, because in the initial discussions they had not uh, participated directly. So there is a consultation taking place at the moment where we've drafted a questionnaire and this has been shared with a number of sovereigns also with the help of the World Bank Um, and we're gathering um, their feedback because the concern is that we don't want to face unintended consequences and find that this initiative in some way is too broad or drafted in such a way that it um, increases the cost of funding for sovereigns which is certainly not uh, the intention. Um, What we're grappling with is the scope of countries that should be caught by this initiative, should it be everyone or a smaller subset to begin with. Where should the information be held and I think certainly the banks feel the IMF would be a natural home for that but there are some discussions going on and there are obviously liability issues and how to keep the information current and who takes responsibility for the submission of, of the data. And then the other thing is, you know, what sort of products should it capture and how far should it extend? Is it just commercial banks? Is it commodity traders? Is it private sector participants that are buying privately placed bonds and so forth, and how can the IIF even bring some of these people on board if they're not members um, of the IIF. And we're also grappling with confidentiality issues within financing documents. We need to get the uh, consent of the borrower or the obligor under that financing document for the banks to make that information available. We're looking at antitrust issues because there could be some antitrust issues in banks behaving in a group together in formulating this policy. And we're also looking at competition issues more broadly Um, we discussed the development of local markets well if international banks adhere to these new standards but domestic commercial banks don't well that put the international banks at a disadvantage and therefore also have a negative impact on the availability of funding but broadly speaking i think everyone's really on board the discussions with the g20 have focused more around how much these principles should acknowledge debt sustainability and how much the private sector should agree that they will look at debt sustainability issues as determined by the IMF and World Bank in evaluating their credit decisions. And also some countries at the G20 level are quite keen on there being an acknowledgement as to actual debt ceilings um, recommended by some of the IFIs and that's also something that's being discussed but more difficult I think for commercial banks. the direction of travel, I think, is good, but um, there's a bit of technical work being done and um, I think it will see the light of day, but we must ma- get, make sure we get it right, basically.
1: Some of the uh, bullet- discussions we need to have that Simon was uh, referring to earlier uh, today has been really helpful for the update. There were a couple of other hands that were, were up, so I'd like to just make sure that they've got a, a chance, the lady at the back.
0: Hi, I'm um, Desne Marci, uh, Global Council. Just a very quick question from me, uh, being a blockchain evangelist,
7: uh, just the issues of data registry, settlements, uh, finding things, uh, you know, having a ledger. Is nobody working on a blockchain of African debt? That's the question.
1: Le- oh, so the gentleman here at the front, perhaps. Is it here, gentleman on the front? And
5: then we go to the sorry for 80s. Hello. Uh, Thank you very much. Uh, My name is Godfrey Datema from Uganda, Commissioner Debt and Police. Just wanted to have two clarifications one on the defaulting country, that is, I think, Mozambique. Uh, I'm wondering why processes to do with the defaulting cannot be let take their own course through arbitration. Why the drama, why the demonstration and so on. What message are we sending and to who? The one on the recent successful innovations for private innovation for private innovations. I just wanted to know where this has happened. In Uganda we've had some private Partnership uh, infrastructure developments, of course, through direct foreign direct investment. This is to do with hydropower uh, generations. It was successful in that it took off, it got implemented, but the rates proved too high for that matter. We've been restructuring it with certain uh, donor funding. So, within that region, African region, where has it been successful? Thank you very much.
1: Left, there were two
10: hands up. Uh, thank you, uh, Gary Forster from Publish What You Fund. Um, we're actually about to launch some work this week um, around multilateral and bilateral uh, DFI transparency. Um, obviously, that's only a snapshot of the total investment and, and debt space, but it does give us an opportunity uh, to develop a best practice around um, transparency in this space. Um, What I wanted to know from the panel is where they would like to see the most sort of energy invested around transparency, because you could look at it in terms of the things that are being invested in, the actual activities, uh, where those are happening, the sectors those are in, um, and and the kind of information that's currently reported to the International Aid Transparency Initiative, um, the standard, uh, which holds a registry of over $2 trillion of of transactions and flows, and actually does cover um, debt flows as well, just just for the room. Um, you could start with looking at transparency around the mechanisms and the instruments themselves and how they're structured, uh, the risks, the returns, etc. Or you could focus on the impact and the effectiveness of the actual things that are being invested in. So I just wanted to know from the panel where they would start if they were looking at that.
1: Okay, Find The final question here. Gentleman at the front.
9: Thank you. Uh, thank you. Uh, my c- uh, question goes to uh, Mr. Brower. Um, you know, the domestic debt... Uh, of, of uh, countries, uh, I think, is also suffering from the original sin- syndrome. Uh, the reason is that uh, since 1996, uh, when the HIPIC initiative uh, started, there has not been any threshold for sustainability of uh, domestic debt. And even with the revised uh, framework that uh, the World Bank and the IMF came up with, uh, which became effective July 1st, uh, 2018, Um, there is still no threshold for domestic debt sustainability so and uh, of course uh, even when you uh, look at the requirement for reporting of uh, debt statistics up to now both in the IMF and the World Bank uh, the issue of domestic debt reporting there is no comprehensive work uh, where you can see any uh, Uh, reliable figure for reporting uh, domestic uh, debt. So if you are promoting local currency debt now uh, uh, with no threshold uh, for domestic debt, uh, uh, what is the fate of uh, 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 the the bond uh, in in terms of reliability uh, when there is no sustainable uh, threshold? And finally, uh, Juliana, also you you talk about uh, the the roadshow uh, that uh, countries make uh, before issuing bonds. I, I would like just to tell you that uh, uh, those roadshows in many cases are just uh, political statements, and not really uh, reflecting the fundamentals of, of the, the economy. I think the, the, the best way to look at the, the risk associated with uh, the economies, is not to listen to uh, the shows, the, the but look at the fundamentals fundamental numbers that are coming out of the, the economy thank you.
1: Um, So, final reflection of the panel, i give you 30 seconds each. Um, uh, You're allowed to to answer questions, but as long as it's in 30 seconds. You may also just want to say one thing that we think we should uh, take away from from the questions or from the discussion. Could I start, actually, on the other side? Judith, could I start with uh, with you, and 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 then we come back here. So, 30 seconds.
7: Okay. Um, I'm going to reiterate that I I think uh, that... uh, uh, Raising mob- or mobilising private finance is absolutely essential. The, there aren't any other realistic sources uh, of the scale that is needed to meet the SDGs. Um, and we need to focus on policy that balances the risks and rewards of that for developing countries. Um, let me, uh, I'm also, I'll also reiterate specifically to your point that I do think that local currency markets are... The, uh, the Nirvana. Um, in, in relation to your question around, should there be a threshold, maybe there should be a given hairstyle, but markets have their own threshold because part of the issuance of those bonds is around credit risk. And so that will be assessed. And I think there is reasonable pricing transparency within local markets, so on stock exchanges and within governments. It's not always captured when you look at some of the international levels, including, of course, corporate debt issuances, which, as I mentioned, has been quite significant. Okay. Thank you. Thomas.
6: Uh, first of all, on transparency, since we had a question, I think I would definitely go first with, with the data transparency, the primary data. Uh, let people draw the conclusions about what uh, what the consequences are. People can always have healthy debates, but once we have reliable data, uh, then then we can have the debate, the policy debates about uh, what's what's best, uh, um, what investment is best. On, uh, on the domestic debt, uh, I d- want to say our, our proposal for GDP-linked bonds was to be in domestic. Uh, I, I agree that you know, the market will find its own uh, um, uh, level of what's to- uh, to- uh, tolerable, but at least it allows the country to focus basically on its economy, because the domestic currency is basically its economy, and it won't have to do exactly to be a currency speculator, as we mentioned earlier. So yes, you know, of course there will always be problems, but it's a lot, there are a lot better problems. Um,
4: look transparency is no silver bullet you need a whole ecosystem um, and uh, you need values and norms as well as things that are enforced and we need all of those uh, put in place in terms of your question over there I'd like to know what you think the answer is it should all be discoverable Um, in terms of where you start it probably is with what would have stopped the Mozambican loan from occurring possibly that's one, one set of questions and I'm really struck also that what Antoinette said earlier, that one investment that's needed in the ecosystem uh, that people take for granted is that legislatures, you need the checks and balances within a country, and yes, you need it to think tanks, yes, you need it to civil society, yes, you need it to journalists, but the, particularly the legislatures need to be able to, to have a certain degree of oversight, and if they don't, if they're given it in name, but they don't actually have the capacity, That that's a real problem.
1: Right.
3: So first, hopping on the same question, I think think ultimately you should fully understand the complete chain so the source of the financing all the way down uh, on the ground to the ultimate asset project whatever that will be generating the cash to repay that financing and only if you understand the full chain you know that you're doing the right thing and if the balance between the two is negative then that should not be invested in it should be financed by means of grants Secondly, in terms of let's say your your local markets, I think ultimately the solution will be, should be, in developing the local capital markets with local pension funds, etc., with transparency that comes with it. And I think, there too, in terms of when you have your negotiations with uh, IMF or IDA or whomever. Um, it's also your turn to get rid maybe of the, uh, what was it, the orphan uh, uh, way of thinking and just push back and say, guys, stop pushing your dollars to us. We don't earn dollars. We earn CDs or whatever. That's what we need. And I would love to help you. Okay.
1: <laughs> Julia.
2: Well, I'm very lucky in that uh, most of my uh, most of the wrapping up points have been made by my fellow panelists, so I don't have much to wrap up on, so I use the opportunity to get back to Baba Muzo's question on roadshows and local development, local markets development. On roadshows, it's really just a dance, a dance where countries get the opportunity to put their best picture forward and tell us about their plans. And then we get to ask questions about those plans. Mm -hmm. But it's our responsibility. And I can tell you most of my peers in the industry will do that, to then ask those questions and travel to those countries to find out if the picture being represented is actually truthful or not. And it is the responsibility of the borrower to give us truthful information, and it goes back to the data issue. So in a sense, we both give each other a chance, but then we check on each other's information. And that is why when we do our analysis, when we decide whether to invest in a country or not, if we see that we have a number of countries where more developed local debt markets that hence give us a bit of confidence if we invest in the dollar side, in the dollar denominated debt, uh, because they have this ability to tap into funds locally as well, so they have a more diversified that picture. We also look into how much of their public le- revenues go into servicing those local debts. And as you know very well, a number of West African countries, for example, without naming names, are now facing the fact of a third to 40% of their public revenues going straight into servicing domestic Mm. bond repayments, Mm. which is a pretty important issue that we're monitoring because it will generate issues in the longer term. So that's just to give you a sense of the thinking that goes on behind investment.
1: I think it would be quite useful to to know where the receipts of the bonds uh, are actually going to and what they're being used for, uh, and if they're raised for a particular purpose that they are actually used for the purpose as well. Good. Um, We've jointly thought about a range of solutions. I hope it uh, it, uh, it meets Simon's test. Um, we thought about um, uh, structured pilots of GDP index bonds. Um, we thought about transparency. So Think about a, um, uh, a database, uh, what the commission was was uh, suggesting, but it's set in a wider ecosystem of, uh, of, of transparency. Uh, we, we discussed guidelines and to be uh, giving them a chance, rolling them out, the G20 guidelines. Uh, we discussed much or more about local currency uh, lending and, lo- and local debt markets, developing those. Um, so these are sort of four or five issues that uh, that, that we've come up with. I thought that there's been a fantastic uh, discussion around this issue. And uh, tomorrow morning we'll discuss the on the other side of the coin, the, the borrower and innovations there. Um, and uh, all I need to do now is... Uh, is uh, two things so 1st to say that uh raja khan is going to be here in about uh 10 minutes to be giving the keynote uh, uh um of, of for this conference in, uh, at the evening and uh so we can all go outside and uh, for for a few minutes just relax um and then then come back but the final final thing is is that i'd like to think uh, of course the um, uh the, the panel session Um, uh, the the organisers so Annalisa and Shakira but uh, first and foremost um, those who uh, presented here uh, so a big applause for our panel Thank you
0: Thank you for listening For more ODI live event podcasts find us on SoundCloud or subscribe to the Overseas Development Institute podcasts via iTunes.